The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. that time in the rainy traffic traffic filled bay area we're here in downtown concord it's the sour hour on the brewing network my name is jay goodwin i'm from the rare barrel and all sour brewery in berkeley um here with scott how you doing scott doing good man i didn't have to sit through that bull crap out on 680 man or no 24 everything everything was just a freaking bloody mess huh yeah i should have oh, taken part and we're here with bevo how's it going bevo bevo's talking to kevin in there you gonna give us two thumbs up <laughs> Hi, I have no idea what you're saying. Oh, jeez. We were, we had just gave you tons of compliments. Yeah, she's not listening either. Uh, we have another guest in the studio tonight. It's uh, Chris Johnson from Green Bend Brewing in St. Petersburg, Florida. How's it going, man? Good. Uh, Green Bench. Bench. Sorry. Yeah, it's all good. No not worries. Bad. No, that, that name gets mixed up a lot. We get Green Bench, Green, green Bend, uh, other words. Green Belt. Green. No, I haven't gotten Green Belt yet. Okay. I'm sure I'll get it. Do the Rays, who are just two blocks away, do they wear green belts? Uh, we need to get in on that, but no, they don't yet. Okay, gotcha. Chris uh, came by the Rare Barrel earlier and uh, shared some of his awesome uh, beers and his sour beers, and uh, they're so good. Uh, I wanted to get him on the show for the this first segment and talk a little bit about uh, his kettle souring techniques. They just, you know, that's a, a technique I often find is just sometimes it's pretty hit or miss and a lot of them are not very well done but yours were were awesome so well i appreciate that man um it's been it's been cool so at at green bench at least for us we 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 love sour beers it's my favorite style of beer and uh something that i always wanted to sort of specialize in what i found though is that we can only do so much with what we have right so uh based on climate control stuff like that we would have to really climate control an entire facility if we wanted to do, for example, beers like yours, which are phenomenal. And I was really excited to to come by and try your beers. Been a fan of yours for a while. So oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, and so in order to do those kinds of beers, it would require some sort of control. Um, we do have a climate controlled cellar room there where we do wine and spirit barrel sour beers. Only holds about eighteen barrels, so everything that comes out of there is is pretty limited and, and small batch. And we're able to play around with barrel aging sours. But it meant that I really had to uh, get creative, I think, with how we soured beers. And there's a lot. I'm not by any means the first person, you know, or the only person making awesome kettle sour beers in the country. But I had to learn it pretty quickly and and figure out how to make great ones in order to make sour beers that I loved. So for sure. Well, they're tasting great. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, Our our guest tonight later on is uh, Troy Casey of Casey Brewing and Blending. Scott, can you confirm or deny that we actually have some of his beers here tonight. Confirm, baby. Awesome. Oh, yeah. I didn't even drink one drop to really? myself. Yeah, you know why? Because he sent three beers, uh, two look like the same Saison, and then something else. And so I almost opened one of the Saisons, but then I was like, ah, you know, this guy's a blender. I better make sure that these are the same beer. And they're not. Totally two different blends, so I did not crack it. It's all uh, waiting for us. Awesome. Well, can't can't wait to get into those and the different uh, blends of his Saison and his, uh, the other stuff he's doing over at... Uh, Casey Brewing and Blending in Colorado, um, really cool stuff. Um, 
But just for stuff that's going on at the Brewing Network, uh, you guys I saw were just uh, Anchor Brewing. Is that right? Did you make that trip, Scott? Yeah, we yeah sure did. Yeah, we did the How's session uh, there on uh, Monday, two nights ago. It's great, man. I mean, obviously you've, you've got you've been to the Anchor Brewery, right? One time, yeah. Yeah, it's a phenomenal place. I mean, that is uh, if beer heaven exists, that's it. <laughs> you know, multiple stories of uh, of, of copper kettles and uh, expansive San Francisco views. And uh, just, a, you know, a legend around every corner. You know, you bump shoulders with you, your Mark Carpenters or your uh, your Bruce Josephs. And it's, they were super hospitable, and I think it went really well. It's a really interesting place, and uh, we're lucky to have such a legendary brewery in our backyard. No the, kidding. The building is kind of funky. It's like, it looks like it's a... Uh like a 1920s movie theater or something. I yeah. Don't know. It's, it's kind it's of art odd. deco for sure. Yeah. You, you wouldn't think there's like, you know, one of the great craft breweries of all time in there, but there is there. Yeah. And even their, their exterior branding is pretty subtle, you know? So it's like that nightclub that you know is cool because there's not even a sign that it indicates that it's a nightclub, but beyond that double door, oh, it's beer heaven. Yeah. That's awesome. You guys definitely got to check out that session. Um, one of the brewing network thing I wanted to touch on is I, I was on the website today and I clicked over to the store, and there's got to be some kind of mistake because I saw there's some hop grenade T-shirts for eight dollars yeah. in the store. No, that is a mistake. Uh, I, I I told Justin eighty. He must have misheard me. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I I bought all of them. But uh, if there's any left, you guys should check out the store. I think there are some items on sale up there. So uh, definitely check it out. There's like a pretty nice Brewing Network scarf that I think is is calling my name. Would you? Oh yeah, you'd rock a scarf. I would. Yeah. It gets. You know, we keep our. Uh, our uh, barrel warehouse at what we call cellar temperature. Uh, it's golden. Yeah. The hop grenade staff came by the rear barrel yesterday to do some uh, training, which really means drinking. <laughs> and uh, Scott was bundled up like he was catching a flight to Chicago or something. Yeah, I did. I, had, I was rocking the mittens. And it's weird because anybody who knows me knows I generally run hot and I always want to be, uh, you know, in the short sleeves. I'm always wearing the, the sandals uh, in the uh, 58 degree weather, which is really cold for California. You're that guy. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely I've been that guy uh, my whole life. Uh, but I knew I was going to be drinking cold beer and you're holding cold beer by the pint, as it were, at the rare barrel because that's how they roll. Uh, had the, uh, for you guys, that's special. Uh, yeah. that's not-, <laughs> uh, not in general. Oh, OK, well. But it was a good time having you guys by, and that's when Chris came by yesterday as well. So that was that was a fun day. Quickly, I just wanted to recap uh, our last show we had on uh, Corey King from Side Project and uh, Perennial. Uh, that was a really fun show, and we had some awesome beers that uh, Corey sent our way. Um, one thing, you guys should definitely check out that uh, that episode. I think it's up on uh, iTunes uh, now. Uh, really interesting how he splits up his duties. I mean, he's the head brewer at Perennial, but... He's the owner and brewer at Side Project, and you know he made a comment that really stuck with me from from last time. Is just that perennial. He's really worried about consistency, so he's trying to make the same barrel aged beers over and over again. He's doing a great job. He, some of his imperial stouts are in like the best beers in the world category uh, rankings list, and the Side Project beers, the sours, are up there too. But he's get, he gets a little more adventurous with the sour beers, which is kind of fun. So it's like. You know, for his day job, he's sticking to the rules. And then for his night job, he's like, eh, I'm going to let it fly a little bit and see what happens. He's like a superhero. For sure. He gets off work at Perennial and uh, just ducks into a phone booth and comes back out holding only a mash paddle. And it's uh, it's off to the this, the, the wild side. Well, he's making some super beers. That's a joke. <laughs> oh, the puns. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I definitely recommend you guys going to check that. I wish that we also had on uh, Roberto uh, from Hop Tech Homebrew. He brought by... 
uh, beers he made with rear barrel uh, slurries that I had gave him. Actually, I forgot that I had given those to him. Give out, give out a lot of those and never expect beer to come back. But slowly but surely, uh, you know, we've been giving out a lot of yeast and bacteria samples to the local homebrewers and, in this case, homebrew shop owners. Uh, and it's just really cool to see people take those and run with them. Uh, his beers are really good. And, you know, it, it, it also goes to show that, you know, homebrewers can, they're totally capable of making exceptional sour beers. Um, it's nice to give them a little bit of a head start with uh, some more advanced cultures, a little more advanced brett and bacteria. Um, but, you know, Roberto, he's, he's got all the knowledge. Um, but, you know, for those of you listening, maybe who aren't up to Roberto's level, that's, that's what we try to do on this show. We're trying to advance not only your knowledge, but our knowledge. I get, I'm lucky enough I get to have these conversations with guys like Chris, guys like Troy all the time. And the idea behind the show is, hey, let's just put it on air because I'm, I'm getting to learn all this stuff, you know, it's not like I'm an expert in this. I just, I'm, I, I get the opportunity to talk to all these other great sour beer brewers. So let's share that on the Brewing Network air. And you know, I definitely feel uh, feel honored to have that that responsibility. Yeah, and for those of you who uh, who disagree with Jay's self assessment, and uh, they do cons- you do consider him to be a uh, a master, uh, you can write in with questions for him at uh, Scott at the Brewing Network dot com at any time uh, throughout the week. You can join the chat for the show, and you can call in. 888-401-BEER. Um, so just getting quickly into a little bit of uh, rare barrel stuff that's happened to us recently. Um, we had a little bit of a, a, a good press bonus, I would say. It's just like we've had a really good year. It's been fun. We just had our first anniversary party. Um, one of the, the icing on the cake moments, though, was that we were just named one of the top 25 beers of 2014 by a draft magazine. Which is a huge honor. Um, Which beer? Uh, it's Home Sour Home. Oh, actually, the beer that I forgot to bring that we were going to taste right now while I was talking about. <laughs> well, that's perfect. You for... couldn't turn around in that traffic and go get it and come back and make it. That, that, yeah. I could be. Li- I could have just lied about it too, and we could have just gone through the segment pretending like we were tasting it. But mm, this sure is cinnamony. I thought about it. Yeah, but yeah, no. I thought I. I remembered that I forgot it about one hour and fifty eight minutes into my two hour journey over. <laughs> so. Needless to say, there were some expletives uh, thrown out in the car. Well, luckily, I had a chance to have some at the the anniversary party on Saturday, awesome. at which I was also bundled up. I don't know if you saw, but I had the <laughs> had the slick jacket on. Uh, it's a, it's the perfect uh, November beer, uh, and I was thinking how amazing it would be to pair it with just like some apple cobbler, you know, because it's got that cinnamon and that vanilla bean and uh, something else, right? Uh, cinnamon, vanilla bean, and peach. And peach. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just an f- amazing combination. Yeah, so we'll, good. We'll definitely get you some for Thanksgiving. No worries no, no, about please. that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I want to, you know, uh, last time we talked, we talked about uh, Cosmic Dust a little bit that, that had uh, won an award recently. And, you know, when, as these beers kind of come up and I, uh, you know, shamelessly self-promote them on the show, I kind of want to give out a little information about them in case, you know, people want to want to try out these recipes. So, Quick rundown on uh, Home Sour Home for people who are interested in making that beer. Um, if you listen back to, I believe it's the second episode, and you go off of our gold recipe uh, that I gave out, brew that. It's a primary fermentation with uh, Brett from Dre Fontanen um, and Lactobacillus delbrueckii. Uh, we get both of those from a lab called uh, Brewing Science Institute. I don't think they do a lot to homebrewers, but... If you look around hard enough, you can find either some substitutes or some some other homebrewers who have those strains that you might be able to borrow them from. 
uh, the gold recipe was a repitch of this mixed culture. So basically, we fermented a, a Berliner type of beer uh, with that primary fermentation, and then we took the mixed culture off that and repitched it into the second batch. Um, ended up with a, a nice acidity to it as 3.33 pH final, if you want to compare to that when you try this at home. Uh, the peach aspect of it is 42 pounds per oak barrel, 8 ounces of cinnamon sticks per oak barrel, and 1 ounce of vanilla bean per oak barrel. This is a batch that uh, we actually, it was a single batch and we split it off into two. One half of it became our first blend, which is called Excuse Me, which is a uh, a golden sour with Brett and Lacto. And then uh, we wanted to do a peach beer also and split that off. Um, the base of the beer already had a strong peach character. So in order to dif- differentiate it more from, excuse me, we actually went ahead and added uh, the spices to kind of make it into more of a, a peach cobbler kind of beer. So that was a that was a fun one. Well, one ounce of vanilla bean per barrel, that sounds like very little. Is it? I'm picturing like a cup, you know, a, a stick. It's yeah, it's like a couple of beans basically. That's it's not a lot. It's a uh, it's more more than flavor because the flavor can get too intense uh, with vanilla, in my opinion. Um, it really changed the mouthfeel for me. It's like it makes it more of a smooth. Um, I hesitate to say like gelatinous, but it reminds it reminds me of that like pie filling kind of like coating your mouth type of feeling. Um, viscous, yeah, viscous. That's nice. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of why it was added. It comes out even in that little bit, but it's more added just to get, kind of make it seem more like a baked good and a sour beer at the same time. What about you, Chris? You brew with uh, vanilla bean? Uh, I've brewed a lot of beers with vanilla bean. Um, I've done a lot of stouts. Um, we've done um, mostly just stouts. Uh, some porters uh, in the past I've done nothing at, at the brewery, but yeah, mostly just stouts for, for vanilla bean. I've done stuff with, um, actually we did like a chocolate IPA once that I added. Uh, vanilla bean too as a pilot batch that was cool how'd that work out was that a good beer yeah i liked it didn't last very long i couldn't like come back to it like the next week so what do you, you want to uh, do a question jay before we uh i would like to uh get to uh troy yeah we're, for sure uh, already running overtime as per usual all okay. right so let's go actually you know what before we get to a question yeah. I, what i really want to hit on this first segment is actually kettle souring so chris is in here because of you know, I was really impressed with his beers. Um, maybe, Chris, you could just start off with, you know, kind of how you just, first off, what kind of lacto you have when you do your kettle sour, and then kind of go through what are you actually doing in the kettle, and how, do, how, do, how does a home brewer and a professional brewer kind of right. replicate what you're doing? Yeah, it's um, it's not too hard. So we use uh, the basic lacto D-strain you can get from Y-Yeast, White Labs. Uh, we get ours from BSI as well. Um, I've used our specific lacto strain for almost two years now between um, pilot batches as before the brewery opened and then as we opened as well. So it's, it's actually pretty simple. So what we do is we'll mash in as normal. We'll louder to the kettle. We'll go to kettle full. Once we're at kettle full, instead of like turning our jackets on and boiling, um, what we'll do is we'll actually recirc the wort from the kettle through the heat exchanger back into the kettle until we get down to about 120 degrees. And we, by the time we're kettle full, we're usually about 160, 165 Fahrenheit. So we'll recirc, but using our oxygen stone, and this is probably the most important part, while using the oxygen stone, we'll hit it with CO2 instead of oxygen. So not only are we purging the tank of, of all of its oxygen, and, and instead of as said, adding CO2, we're injecting CO2 into the liquid itself. So the entire, like, Close to a half hour of research before it gets down, the entire kettle gets down to 120. We're just adding CO2. 
once it's done, we're at 120. I'll cut off the heat exchange, basically just the uh, oil cuddle pump, cold liquor pump. Keep the CO2 running, though. And then I take uh, a culture of lactobacillus, which is actually just in a corny keg that I keep, uh, and I'll hook it up with a ball lock black disconnect with a hose and tri-clamp fitting, hook it up to the back of the kettle, pump it with CO2 into the kettle, and I will set the jacket to 110 degrees. So essentially all you're trying to do is create the optimal fermentation environment for lactobacillus to quickly create lactic acid. But the key is clean lactic acid. Um, A lot of sour beers that I've had that are kettle soured will have sort of off flavors. Mm -hmm. And in in my opinion, the, the one step that's the most important is making sure to purge everything with co2 um the most common thing that or at least that i tell people is is is, it's essentially a a sensory test so you'll come back within 12 hours 24 hours 48 hours test it i'll test off the back of the kettle and again i leave this crazy blanket of co2 over the top of the kettle even up through my exhaust and everything that's that's after your basically carbonating the wort so you're also topping it off with a blanket or there's just that blanket there already I, I leave the CO2 on, which mm-hmm. is actually going to push all the liquid post heat exchange in through the kettle, into the kettle, okay. and then it's just pumping CO2. And I leave that going for like five minutes. So I let that thing just run. Mm-hmm. And then, so it's creating this blanket, CO2 being heavier than oxygen is going to purge everything out. Then once I pitch the lacto, uh, I'll let it sit at 110 degrees on my jackets for you know about a couple of days. In usually 24 hours to to 48 hours at 24 hours i'll check every 12 hours i'll just go around the back take a sample off the back of the kettle test taste it at that point it's all sensory you're trying to taste what at what point is the acidity level appropriate for what you're trying to make mm-hmm. once it's correct then all i do is i just put a ph meter in there test the ph now i know this is the actual ph i'm looking for for this specific beer every time now and you're always what, what is that usually depends on the beer um like berliner weiss i usually go down about three two to three four um, we do a surrealist IPA or sour IPA, like three six, three seven. Um, our French oak brune is like three one. So we'll it, it depends on the beer. But once you find the acidity level you're looking for, and that's going to take time because obviously perceived acidity with you know sugar in, in solution is different than perceived acid, acidity post fermentation. But you'll sort of understand that as you do it a few times. Uh, once you have that, I write down the pH. Then I'm just replicating the pH. I do the same step the next time. Now, when I come back to it, it's right at the pH I want. It's pretty easy. I hook the tri-clamp fitting right back up to the bottom of the kettle, fill the corner keg right back up. That's my starter for my next batch. So I just reuse that lacto. Then I boil it. At that point, if you're doing like a Berliner, you don't have to boil it longer than 15, 20 minutes. You're killing mm-hmm. the lacto. Throw in your little bit of noble hops to get four or five BUs. Run that to your heat exchanger. At that point, you're hitting it with oxygen like you normally would. goes into a stainless, saccharomyces, it ferments out. Two to three weeks, you have a Berliner Weiss that's pretty clean and nice. Now, the, the big key, I think, is, is making sure in sensory that you don't have off flavors. The most common off flavor that I've ever had when I, when I taste people's sort of kettle sour beers, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough so far to not have had that happen since we opened the brewery, is you get this cheesy, almost like Parmesan cheese kind of rancid kind of character, right? Um, and which a lot of people don't really know what to attribute that to. Um, what, I, what I believe is happening is it's essentially a, um, a buildup of, well, a lot of people say, I've, I've heard a lot of people say butyric acid, and it's not necessarily butyric acid because butyric is almost always vomit. Like it's like crazy bile. Um, usually what I think it always, it always is is uh, isovaleric acid, which is commonly confused with butyric. Isovaleric mm-hmm. is far more like the Parmesan cheese character. Or like it, stinky feet. Yeah, almost. stinky feet. And actually, that's actually what happens with stinky feet. Literally, in like your toes, a um, 
bacterial strain will start eating. Um, yeah, it'll yeah. start eating this thing called loose. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. It smells like blue cheese, Parmesan. It's like a horrible, like, yeah, it's like a horrible roommate. It's horrible. <laughs> it smells uh, like UCSB. Yeah. There, well, there, there's actually this, um, uh, an essential amino acid called leucine. And leucine is what is what different bacterial strains will break down. Keep in mind, aerobic bacteria will break down and then create isovaleric acid, and that's the smell you get. Something that has, happens to have a lot of leucine, just naturally, things like corn, rice, wheat, barley. So everything that we use to make beer has this naturally in it. So usually what happens, I believe, is it's other bacteria, not necessarily the lactobacillus, in the presence of oxygen, creating this aerobic fermentation of this leucine and creating um, isovaleric acids, which smells like stink feet, like it's like funky feet. Now, the big key is uh, is major, just purge everything out. Luckily, when you're doing like kettle-soured beers, you're not really, you, you can look for it, but you're not really going to find much sour, you know, off flavors that, for example, you're going to find. Like you're not, you shouldn't have much uh, acetobacter. Mm-hmm. You know, acetobacter, there's no, there's no ethanol, right? So acetobacter is oxygen, ethanol, you create acetic acid. That's what this bacteria does. Um, and so then, therefore, you shouldn't have any of the off flavors that acetobacter and creation of acetic acid would lend. For example, um, uh, ethyl acetate, you know, right. nail polish kind of characteristic. You shouldn't have any of that because there's no actual, um, uh, there's no yeast, so there's no ethanol, there's no, there's no alcohol, there's also no oxygen. The best way to get rid of all of these is just to make sure you have a true anaerobic environment. If you don't have that true anaerobic environment, you will get the horrible feet smell and all that stuff. So it's, it's really pretty simple. I think as long as you can put a lot of CO2 in there, you should be fine. That's awesome. And, you know, that's great advice for people who are who love sour beer. They want to get into it, but maybe they don't want to embark on that, you know, bread, bacteria, fermentation, barrel aging side. I mean, your beers are awesome. We, we got to try a few of them yesterday, and that's one of the best Berliners I've ever had for sure. Oh, thank you. So people listening right now, uh, you know, how can they get your beer? What's going on at Green Bench in the next couple of months? What's, what's... Right uh, Well, uh, back home uh, is basically where you can only get our beers right now. Um, but it's, it's pretty exciting. We started to uh, release a, lot of, a few sour beers in bottles. So we had our first bottle release about a month ago. We released two beers. Um, our first is a Web City Cellar Beer, which is our climate-controlled cellar room for wine and spirit barrel-aged sour beers. It's a rye sour brown fermented with uh, Britannomyces clasinii in uh, Cabernet Sauvignon barrel wood aged for nine months. And then we did our Wood Parade series, which is our spirit barrel-aged series, which happens to be a an apple brandy barrel-aged tart cherry imperial stout. It's brewed with over a pound of cherries per gallon of beer, um, actually slightly acidified with lactobacillus as well because I was afraid I wasn't going to get the tart character from the cherries, so I acidified it slightly to mimic the tart character. Um, but that's not to say that someone that's doing kettle-soured beers can't do barrel-aged beers as well. I mean, our right. sour brown mm-hmm. is kettle-soured, run into Cabernet Sauvignon barrels and fermented with wild yeast to be this true American wild ale. And even further, this allows us to breach or to walk upon paths that we haven't been able to with sour beers. For example, we specialize in a lot of hoppy sour beers. So we do our Surrealist IPA, which is a sour IPA, or Colliding Galaxy Sour Double IPA, all these sort of sour hoppy beers that you weren't able to do because hops prohibit the growth of bacteria and the production of sour flavors so with this technique you can get your sour then you can add hops in your boil normally and make it an ipa so there's a whole like road of sour beers we've never gotten to make before 
And there are breweries that do it. I mean, Trinity Brewing makes awesome sour IPAs. I know the Commons, actually, almost all their sour beers are kettle soured as well. So we're definitely not the only ones that do kettle sour well, but they're they're awesome. So, yeah, and so we got more bottle releases coming out. Um, Probably in March, we'll do another cellar beer. And every four months, we release a brand new sour beer from our cellar room. Awesome. It's great info. Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us. It's Chris Johnson from Green Bench Brewing in St. Petersburg. If you're anywhere near there, Make the drive, get over there, get those beers. I think uh, Scott's giving me some looks because we're going a little bit over on this segment. I so. just want to drink Troy's beer, man. I know. Yeah, you don't have a beer. So let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back. This is the Sour Two Hours on the Brewing Network. Starting a brewery is not for the faint of heart. Uh, it's definitely a labor of love. If you're not going to give it 100%, don't bother Brewers Publications is proud to present the Brewers Association Guide to Starting Your Own Brewery by Elysian Brewing's Dick Cantwell. Business plans, financing, sustainability, and more. This book takes you through the planning and execution needed to turn the dream of craft brewing into a reality. Whether you want to open a brew pub or a packaging brewery, learn the professional side of ingredients, wastewater, quality, and how to build the craft brewery of the future. The Brewers Association Guide to Starting Your Own Brewery, available now from Brewers Publications and BrewersPublications.com. Like a motherfucking candy cane. Snoop Dogg hanging 
Jimmy like a great day. Ho, ho, motherfucking ho. Get on your knees, bitch, now I'll show you where this goes. Yeah, put your Jimmy in the motherfucking chimney. I stick my Utah dog in your ass. And then we dress up nice and go to Midnight Mass. Yeah. Christmas time in the LBC. Rat, tat, 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 please bring this nigga again. On the Sour Hour, still hanging with uh, Chris from Green Bench and Nailed Scott it. and Bevo. We're doing well. We're going to talk to uh, Troy Casey in a minute, but Scott told me he has something really important to say first. Indeed, I do. Um, first off, I can't wait to drink these saisons from Troy. Uh, and if you want to be like Troy or like Jay and you want to start your own brewery, the Brewers Association's Guide to Starting Your Own Brewery. We'll help you plan and open a thriving, quality-oriented brewery. This is something that you wish uh, existed when you were uh, getting started, Jay. I'll tell you what. Uh, industry veteran Dick Cantwell. You guys know Dick from Elysian? Great brewer. Yeah. He yeah. Uh, adeptly covers ingredients, financing, business plans, quality assurance, distribution, wastewater, sustainability practices, and more. 
you know, for you, a prospective brew pub and packaging brewery owners. Cantwell walks the reader through the planning and execution required to turn craft beer uh, dreams into reality. I know many of you have those dreams, so this is the, uh, this is the place to turn to make it happen. You know, uh, it was around when I was starting a brewery, but it was oh. like the first version. It wasn't the one that's currently out. And yeah, I wore that thing out cover to cover. I mean, I took extensive notes on all that. It's that's a tremendous book. If, if you're starting a brewery without that, you're you're just making a huge mistake. Oh, you're yeah. throwing away money, and it's like, <laughs> I don't know how much it costs, but it should be ten thousand dollars. So if you're starting a brewery, you got to get that amongst you know a lot of the Brewers Association publications. It's all it's all must read because if you're not willing to read a, read a book to start a brewery. You know, you're not going to be willing to do all the other stuff it takes. Right. Maybe you should just go dream about starting a T-shirt company like every loser I knew back in Santa Barbara. Oh, they have oh. a great idea, and they're going to do a T-shirt company. I have and... an idea for a T-shirt company. <laughs> we got to talk about it off air, though, because it's, you know, proprietary. You give your ideas away, yeah. Of yeah, but enough jibber-jabber. Uh, let's get to our guest tonight, Troy Casey from Casey Brewing and Blending. Are you there, Troy? How's it going, boys? Good to hear your voice, man. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been good. You guys, I missed you guys in Denver. Uh was it last month but well done on that award that's awesome oh thanks man well uh we got before we give you uh your full intro maybe you could uh actually tell us a little bit about the beers we're drinking we have uh saison blend two and saison blend three in front of us we do any yep. uh what, what's your what's your big takeaway from the difference between the two um so those all came from the uh like some of the original batches i did back in april we started brewing those in april um so the difference between blend two and blend three is really just age and then the barrels they came from so blend two spent about two months in oak and blend three spent about three months in oak um, before they were packaged uh and so what i wanted to show you guys tonight was just kind of how um the blending process can can make similar beers but also pretty different as well and so for to me to me um blend three is a little bit thicker it's like it's got a little bit more viscosity when i first poured it you could just hear it was different when you were pouring it because of the thickness of it and i was like "Uh oh diacetyl right it has to be diacetyl what else would make viscosity like that but uh, I never picked up uh, any butter in it. Hopefully, you guys don't either. Um, but it just kind of goes to show you how different, um, how simple blending can be from when you speak about it, but how complex the flavors can come from it. Yeah, definitely. No, these are clean, free of off flavors. and Yeah, not a hint of butter. Yeah, I'm really digging them. And I, I can, you know, there, there's some off flavors I don't get at all, but butter is one I feel like I can pick out from mile away, and there's, there's nothing in that. These are tasting real good, Troy. Um so a little a little background on Troy. Uh, let's see. I don't know where to start, but is it true that you started as a tour guide at Coors, and then it came, kind of came full circle a few years later? Absolutely. Yeah. About about ten years ago, I uh, started as a tour guide at Coors. I was doing my uh, undergrad in chemistry at the time. Um, had zero interest in going into any of the um, traditional chemistry major uh, path career pathways. Uh, and then when I was a tour guide, I realized that. Um, I could have a career in brewing. And so that's kind of where I focused my attention and turned my attention. I started working at um, Bristol Brewing Company in Colorado Springs um, at the time with Jason Yester, who now is the brewer at, uh, and owner at Trinity. Um, and then I had a couple uh, internships at, uh, at Coors before I went uh, closer to you guys uh, to UC Davis, and I did my master's there in food science. Um, I worked for uh, the AB Brewery there in Fairfield, while I was there, um, left Davis uh, 2008, um, and then got a job working in the pilot brewery, of course. 
Awesome. And Troy, maybe uh, just to take another step back, we know we're drinking your beers right now, but for all the people who don't have them in, in front of them, can you explain the way that you ferment your beers? And, you know, you say that you make make these in an old world style. What, what does that mean to you? So just about a year ago to the day, I left um, my job at Miller Coors and I started out on uh, the, the pathway to where we are today. So I'm the owner of Casey Brewing and Blending. We're in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. It's uh, about two and a half hours west of Denver. Um, we're, we're in Glenwood Springs, which is kind of a t- tourist, resort, uh, tourist town, about 40 minutes outside of Aspen. And uh, this is kind of where we kind of my uh, wife and I decided this is where we wanted to make a go at it and uh, make our brewery. And so, yeah, we're making old world um, Belgian style beers. The first of them are the Saison's, which you're trying right now. Um, we uh, ferment 100 percent and age 100 percent in oak wine barrels using mixed culture. Um, uh, using having a mixed culture fermentation. And so everything is fermented in oak. So these these uh, Saison's are actually fermented in uh, punchins, which I converted into open fermenters. And so I took a 500-liter punchin, took the, took the heads off of uh, on one side, um, put some valving on it, and had, now we've got an open fermenter. Um, so that's where we add three different types of Saison yeast. So it's about 90% DuPont, 10% French Saison yeast. We'll add some uh, Brett, uh, the Dre Fontaine from Brett, like BSI, as you guys were talking about. Some Lacto also from BSI, and then some some other cultures. And then we'll let them ferment in those barrels for about six or seven days, um, after which we'll rack over to smaller, more traditional um, wine barrels for anywhere from six weeks to uh, three or four months for the Saison for that series of beers. Awesome, man. You're getting... Uh... A real high level of complexity and a nice soft acidity in that relatively short amount of time. These beers are, are absolutely beautiful. Um, what are the, some of the things you consider when you try to do an uncontrolled open fermentation? And uh, you know, I saw on your on your Facebook, you're uh, at least you know positing what's what's going to happen with your your colder weather now and how that's going to affect the fermentations. Can you touch on kind of like? The, the amount of you the amount of control you have on your fermentations and how you think that'll play out absolutely and so again I mean old world goes past the, just the fermentation it goes we don't have any temperature control um, we've got a heater in our warehouse here but in our cellar area but that's it but we don't have any temperature control in those food uh, punch in fermenters um, we're doing uh, we're on we're not filtered. Um, we're bottle conditioning so we're kind of uh, try, I try to envision like how would brewers have done it pre-industrial uh, era, era. And so we don't have a forklift. We don't have um, a lot of things that most traditional brewers have now. So for us, yes, yeah, seasonality is going to play into it. We're going to, when it's warmer, our barrel room gets into the mid to high 70s. And so if it's, when it's colder, like right now here, it, it gets into the, uh, the, the low single digits at night. Um, so our cellars around in the 50s at night, and that's going to have an effect on that open fermentation, which we don't have any control um, from temperature-wise. And so um, I'm okay with that just because it's fun to tell the consumers, um, and they are, uh, my consumers are passionate about those differences because they understand this isn't something that is reproducible. My goal is to always, if, whenever you try that Saison from now until for the next uh, however long I get to brew that for, 
an average consumer wouldn't wouldn't be able to tell the differences, but the people that are passionate, like uh, like ourselves, can kind of geek out about the intricacies of the different batches. Um, and so it'll come through the blending process where we'll really get to make uh, the same type of flavors and try to make something that's a little bit reproducible, but always knowing that it'll never be the exact same. So we help. Um, we uh, during the winter, what I'm trying to do is maybe cool the wort a little bit warmer, so like in the low 70s, whereas in the summer it might be in the high 60s, um, so that they can get a kickstart, the yeast can get a kickstart. Um, I'm not really worried about any infection from a fermentation since we're using open fermenters, just because we're at, we're giving it a good strong culture to start, and I think anything that might contribute off flavors will be uh, outcompeted um, during the fermentation, and so. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, we, yesterday we just did the seventh brew of the Saison since, and we've been open for about seven months now. And so we're very, very tiny. We just sell about a hundred cases a month right now. Uh, Mike is in the chat room and he asks you guys, do you think the isovaleric acid smell goes away, uh, or changes with aging? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, it's Chris here from Green Bench. We, uh, I, I don't think it does. I think that if you ever are kettle souring and get to a point and you taste that, I would dump that right now. Just the entire kettle. I mean, the, the big key is that um, why risk it really is how I look at it. At this point, all you've really spent money on is is a bacterial strain that you can easily grow up again, uh, grain. You haven't risked any of your um, your cellar equipment. You haven't risked a barrel. You haven't risked anything, your packaging stuff. So it's, it's, it's a lot easier, I think, at this point just to dump it down the drain and then start over with your mash. Um, real quick, though, since I have the mic, Troy, I actually have a question for you. Um, I know you. So you're doing open fermentation, and your your concept is obviously each batch to be quite uh, different than the last. Uh, at Green Bench, I, I've I actually have a fooder, and in it we do we do our farmhouse sales, and the concept is 100% oak fermented farmhouse sales. Do you clean your punch and barrel in between batches? I, I heard you say that you add a culture because the way that I do it is we we actually decided that we wouldn't clean it in between batches because we wanted to use the inoculate as its biggest defense against anything wild while understanding that eventually it will take its own turn into whatever it, it needs to be one day. So it, it is it is definitely the same kind of concept, hands-off, allowing the nature to kind of control and, and mimic and, and, and change and adapt uh, with, with us not really having much control over it. That's how we did it. And I'm just curious if you clean it in between batches. Yeah, so our, our uh, the, the punchins are 500 liters. And so after six or seven days, um, the majority of – or at least a lot of the yeast settles out to the bottom of the barrel. And so we rack off of that. And then what we're left with is a slurry at the bottom. What I'll, what I'll usually do is just harvest around um, either up to a growler full of yeast from, from that, what, what has settled out. And then I totally clean it. And so, and that just means hot water and elbow grease. Of course. And, uh, and that um, I like that because when you keep repitch, when you keep uh, putting yeast onto, or excuse me, putting wort onto yeast cultures, those this, the cultures just keep growing and growing in mass. And then, um, like something for me that I lose sleep over is foam stability and having right. a good foam on a beer. And uh, when you have autolysis of uh, of different flavors, that is something that is a concern to me. Um, and so, yeah, I clean them and then repitch what I what I harvested um, for the next batches. Right on. We we actually what we do is when we finish our fermentation, we pull everything out and we actually dump almost all the yeast out to try to avoid as much autolysis as possible until we have sort of the slurry, the amount that we want, and then we'll just essentially like the word inoculate kind of concept. At that point, fill it right back up on what's left and allow it to do its thing. Sounds pretty similar, yeah. Hey Troy, uh, speaking of your process a little bit, um, what 
tell tell us a little bit about your focus on specifically Colorado ingredients and and local fruit. You know, how do you pick the types you're going to use? How do you source them? How do you process them? All those types of details. So again, going back to that old world farmhouse brewing tradition, where 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 brewers would make beer with what they grew on their own fields or on their neighbor neighbors' farms. Um, I'm making uh, those beers that you're trying today. Those are made with 100% Colorado ingredients. Um, I mean, I just like, again, old world, this is what people would make beer with. And, and Colorado is one of the few states that we've got that uh, you can grow um, everything that you need to make these types of beers. And so I definitely can't make beers with the, the fancy designer hops, but I can make some fun farmhouse beers with uh, what we've got. So we use um, malt, both malted and raw barley and wheat. Um, we're using Colorado-grown uh, crystal and cascade hops. Um, the yeast comes from Brewing Science Institute, which it sounds like a lot of people are familiar with, and then obviously local water. Um, and so I, to me, it's just uh, it's, it's what I want to do. I, love, I, I like to say that I spend more time talking with farmers and growers than I do doing finance, um, and I do my own finance. And so, uh, But that's just why like, one of the things that got me into brewing was being able to talk to people that are just as passionate uh, as we are uh, being brewers. They're just as passionate about what they get to make. And so I get to talk with the, um, the growers. I know the families that make my ingredients, and I think that's um, – it, it gets a lot – you know, nowadays brewers can pick up the phone and order everything they need from around the world from talking to one person – and uh, that's a great thing. That's what got us to this point today for in the American craft brew uh, industry. But again, that's what a lot of people are doing. And so I wanted to kind of differentiate myself in that uh, sense a little bit. And uh, being here on the western slope of Colorado, where a lot of that agriculture comes from, um, it was kind of a no-brainer. Uh, being able to talk to growers, you realize what they love. I go out to the fields and I talk with growers and say, like, what's your favorite plum variety? And they're like, oh, you got to try the elephant heart plums. Like, and then he just goes and picks one off the tree. And we're, we're tasting it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so good. Why is nobody doing this? And it's just because it's kind of like something that nobody's really gotten to yet. And so that's kind of where I'm, where I'm going. That's what I'm passionate about is uh, um, talking to people and uh, learning what's good. Um, again, it, it always it comes down to that old world pre-industrial era um, brewing techniques, which was you made beer with what you had, um, and that's what I do. I'm gonna I'm gonna make beer with what I've got. Awesome. Uh, any more questions from the chat for the group, Scott? Yeah. Well, there's a bunch on email, so uh, let's get to those. Yep. Uh, here's one from Richard Daudry. He said, "Greetings, guys. If I have a barrel that has sat empty and has started growing mold inside, what are my options?" Well, from from my perspective, I mean, uh, easiest thing to do is just get rid of it. I mean. That's the safe way to know that, you know, you're never going to introduce mold to your beer. Um, you know, it, if you want to try to save it and put a batch of beer in there and you're intent on doing that, uh, we, we use a, a few chemicals. Um, so we use, uh, I'd start with hot water and sodium percarbonate. Um, rinse that all out pretty well with uh, additional hot water and then do a, a rinse with uh, citric acid after that. And then I'd leave it. Uh, in a solution of uh, potassium made by sulfide and citric acid for quite a while. That's that's what we use as our, uh, those last two are, what we use as our storage solution when we're not using barrels for a long time. Um, but, I mean, you are you are risking it. I mean, there are things, it, molds and yeast, they can grow deep into the wood more than you can just see on the surface. I think I heard a story from an interview that was actually on Brewing Network 
uh, from Matt Brendelson, uh, and he said that he found uh, Britannomyces in their uh, barrel program, but like deep centimeters deep into the into the oak, and they're obviously only putting clean beer in there, and they've got you know probably the most expensive barrel steamer on the market, and they're crazy about testing, and they have super smart brewers and all this stuff. And so, even still, yeah, if they find Brett deep in the wood, then you know what's to stop mold from growing deep in the wood? So. That that would be my hesitation, but if you want to give it a shot, that's my uh, that's my recommendation. Recommendation, uh, Chris or Troy? Do you have any more additional uh, tips on that? I, personally, I would toss the barrel. Um, we back home in, in where I am in St. Petersburg, it's really tropical, so we actually have a, a mold issue, especially like in our cellar, and it basically has come down to um, getting a, a dehumidifier and literally weekly pulling all of our barrels out, cleaning the entire room. Uh, using a little bit of quatamonia, which is what we'll end up using to to kill any mold, um, even down to like uh, like very small amounts with water and slightly brushing the the barrels a little bit, because just to avoid it getting seeping into the barrels. But uh, if it was if I ever found something on the inside, I think I'd just get rid of it. Cool. And and Troy, anything to add to that? Absolutely. Um, and so, assuming that they're going to make a sour beer or a wild beer with that barrel, I think. Um, Again, I'm going to go fall back on that old world uh, idea, which is what would a what would a farmer do if they found that back uh, 200 years ago? They're going to use that barrel because that's the only one they've got. So, yeah, if you can treat it with a little steam, a little hot water, especially a little elbow grease, I mean, that's going to be that's an aerobic uh, culture, whatever that is. And so, you you scrub that away, give it some hot water, give it a good culture in there. Uh, I don't think you. I think it's I think it's worth the risk um, if it's not easy like it is for all of us to get an extra barrel. I would try it. Yeah, look at you, uh, uh, Chris and Jay. You uh, spoiled first worlders. You oh, just get <laughs> well, rid Troy, of it. Troy's just a great marker. He's staying oh. on brand so well. That was, that was <laughs> at what every home brewer wanted one of us to say. So <laughs> yeah, you're you're a hero now, Troy. But uh, Scott, the fermentation in the barrel, and then you're going to be even a little bit. Uh, a little bit safer if you actually ferment in the barrel. It'll just add complexity. It's just going to be an overwhelming inoculation. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, do we have time for another question, Scott? Yeah. Let's. Well, uh, let's tease it over the break. It's a little bit more of a complex question. Ooh, I'll, okay. I'll let the three of you guys uh, uh, marinate on it during the break. So this one is all the way from Sweden, from Bjorn Bjorn Lundsten. He says greetings. Uh, currently greetings. operating a small uh, micro five hectoliter system. Had an idea of creating a micro sour program with a single solera which would be a 30 to 50 hectoliter dairy tank that would be filled with wort pre-fermented with an ale strain and then set to sour with some bacteria in the larger vessel, a stainless vessel, uh, in some kind of temperature-controlled environment. The idea would be that you could, uh, with certain intervals, pull off 500 liter and add 500 liter fresh uh, and hence creating a larger variant of the one-vessel Solaris homebrewers use. Do you guys see any obvious downsides to this approach? And then uh, what temperatures and sour strains would you propose for the tank, given that one perhaps uh, would like to pull something like this uh, twice per year, he says. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a meaty question. I think we've all got our opinions on it, but you'll hear them after the break. This is the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Since the first time the Brewing Network microphones turned on, more beer was behind it. More Beer sponsors the programming on the BN because, like you, they love brewing. And like the Brewing Network, they love sharing their knowledge. MoreBeer.com isn't just a website to place your next equipment or ingredient order. 
morebeer.com also gives you access to free beer information that will make you a better brewer. Go to morebeer.com and click into the Learning Center. You'll find podcasts, technical facts, video tutorials, and more, including access to The Buzz, More Beer's social network of more than 5,000 members. And some of them might even be crazier about beer than you are. Get over to morebeer.com today and take advantage of The Buzz, The Forum, The Learning Center, and make sure you're signed up to receive the newest More Beer catalog. More Beer bringing you absolutely everything for beer making.
What song is that, Scott? That is awesome. This is uh, Cut Off by Kasabian from the same oh, album as uh, our intro. Really? Yeah. This is Kasabian still? Wow. Yeah. I got to check that out. Yeah. You can, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> Let it ride. All right. Hey, guys. So uh, if you like this show, you will definitely like other shows on the Brewing Network, like Dr. Homebrew. That airs tomorrow night, um, mostly Thursdays, uh, sporadically uh, in any given month. That is hosted by our uh, one and only JP, where Who? they... Uh, John Palmer, JP. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is uh, uh, Mr. Petros' show where it's basically a, a uh, an on-air uh, beer judging session. Like, if you want to hear how a BJCP judge is going to judge your beer in competition, but you want to hear what their thought process is like and you want to hear it in real time, Dr. Homebrew's the show. And then, of course, there's Bruce Strong that is uh, airing this Friday. So we got a Sour Hour, uh, Dr. Homebrew, and Bruce Strong back to back to back. Wow. What, we what are they going to talk about on Bruce Strong? Do you know? Uh yeah you know Q and A just uh, the yeah. beer beer wisdom from uh, John Palmer and Jamil Zayn chef to a wide range of brewing questions love awesome. both those shows yeah pretty awesome oh yeah mm. you learn you learn a little bit from I them? did actually yeah I I for a long time I was a home brewer and uh, actually worked in a homebrew shop and taught brewing classes and um, I listen to Doctor Homebrew a lot actually I'm a nationally certified BJCP judge now but it was had to there do a go. lot with that man uh, good man it helped. I've been on a boring family vacation before and just gone through like the old Jamil show and like oh, some Bruce that. Strong's and just like, wow, I should really be like taking in some culture right now, but I'm really just listening to Brewing Network all day. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's good, good stuff. What are and you I- saying? Are you saying we're not cultured? Uh, I'm gonna, uh, so right. we've got uh, Troy Casey on the show tonight. He's the founder and blender at uh, Casey Brewing and Blending uh, in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. He's He is the man. Uh, he's serving us some great beers here. We've got uh, actually the cherry fruit stand in front of us now. Can you tell us a little bit about this, Troy? I think maybe before he does, he wants to uh, make a quick follow. He messaged me frantically during the oh. break. I got to make a follow up to the last yes. question, so go for it, baby. Awesome. I just wanted to say, if the barrel smells bad, yeah, you're, you're, there's no hope. It's just dump it, t- take the loss. But if it's just a little growth and it smells fine, I would I stick stand by my previous assessment. Awesome. There you go. Can you, can you give us a, a quick hit on this uh, cherry fruit stand? And then we'll uh, answer that question we uh, we talked about before the break. Absolutely. So cherry. So the fruit stand series is uh, is taking the saison and aging it on fresh uh, whole fruits. And so the version you guys are drinking is uh, with cherries, and I believe it's with the Montmorency cherry, which is the traditional um, pie cherry. Um, so we in this beer we use uh, it about uh, the cherries at about a pound per gallon. Um, I, we, I drive out to Hotchkiss, Colorado, uh, and go get my my grower, um, and we're, they're picking the cherries while we while we're watching. Um, take those cherries, get them back on beer in the same day, and so again about a pound per gallon. Um, we take the whole cherries, just give them a quick wash with water just to get any. Um, dirt or uh, leaves off of them and then they go right into an oak barrel we'll rack uh, a chosen um, be- uh, blend of saison onto the cherries let them ferment for another uh, anywhere from three to six weeks and then we'll rack them off the off the fruit um, get them into our blending tank add yeast and sugar and then they'll undergo bottling for about another month or so so that's uh, we've done three different uh, cherry varieties of that fruit stand and uh, this is one of my favorites Troy, I love the uh, terroir nature you have on uh, these beers. Uh, I have a quick question. Do you break the cherries up at all before you put them in, or are you going in whole? 
So this um, we've done two sour cherries and one sweet cherry version. Um, sour cherries are very delicate, right? I'm sure you guys all know this, but um, sour cherries, when they're picked off the tree, the stem stays behind. And so the flesh is exposed instantly, which is why you kind of never see a sour cherry um, on the shelf. They're always frozen. They've got a really like short shelf life. And so really just the processing of the sour cherry, getting them into a barrel breaks them up pretty good. Um, the sweet cherries though, we have to, which, which made some really unique flavors that I was really excited about. They, we have to de-stem those and then basically hand crush them because we have to expose the flesh. Uh, and so with the sour cherry, just minimal processing gets everything in contact with the beer, in my opinion. Awesome. I actually didn't know that about sour cherries. That's pretty cool. I didn't either. I, want, that, I didn't know. want to admit, but you started it. So yeah, I didn't know either. <laughs> I mean, you got so much experience with whole fruit, Troy. That's, uh, you know, part of the reason you're on the show besides your awesome beer. This is tasting great, by the way. Um, I don't want to forget, we did uh, tease a question from Bjorn from Sweden uh, yes. before the break. And, you know, I'm not going not gonna to make you repeat the whole thing, Scott, but it sounded to us, we were discussing a little bit during the break, like sort of a, a smaller version of basically what New Belgium does. Uh, do you have a take on that, Troy? Uh, I've never done anything uh, with Solera's. Uh, the only point I want to make is um, when you do a Solera method or you only have one uh, tank that you're trying to uh, create something wild or, or sour from is that you just run the risk of it not turning out well. So for me, the blending aspect of Casey Brewing and Blending is that we have different options and uh, we can make um, unique flavors from uh, other things and uh and we don't basically put all our eggs in one basket, which is what you're doing and it, what this gentleman sounds like he's doing. Um, and so you can have great success with it. But uh, when you like you just mentioned New Belgium, they've got a whole – it's like an airplane uh, hangar full <laughs> of booters that they can um, that they can blend from as well. And so um, that's the only risk that I see. But I'm sure you guys know more about this than I do. Uh, I mean, no, that's that's a terrific answer. And I, I, I agree. You know, it is putting all your eggs in one basket. Um you know, just before you do that, just make sure your culture is strong enough, I think would be my advice. Like, why why put it in this, uh, no matter how big or small the tank is, why put it, you know, prove to yourself that you can make one gallon of great sour beer. Prove to yourself you can make five gallons of great sour beer before you're trying to make 50 gallons. I'm terrible at converting from hectoliters, so I have no idea. <laughs> and it was like 10 minutes ago, so I don't remember the exact volume, but that that would be my advice. Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't use the Slayer as, as a like whatever you're taking off probably as what you package. I mean, as Casey has already kind of said and, uh, and what Jay's kind of mentioned, I would probably use that as the blend. Like you take that off and I would use it to blend back with maybe a farmhouse sale that you've made or, or something else that you made to sort of make these really complex flavors. Um, that that's, and that's how new Belgium does it. They'll take some off. They'll, you know, blend it with different beers, make this awesome beer. And then they fill it back up with a, with a already fermented beer. And that's your inoculate. Yeah, for sure, and that that definitely gives you a little bit of uh, a little bit of wiggle room, um, Troy. I was wondering, uh, you know, we've got our our saison varieties in front of us, but you've also got another beer in the pipeline. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between these beers and your Belgian style sour, Belgian style sour that might be out maybe end of the year or beginning of next year? Absolutely, and so uh, we're trying to do Belgian style sour beers, and so the saison, those farmhouse 
beers that you guys are trying now. It's just one part of it. Uh, the other part is kind of um, Lambic-inspired beers, Lambic-styled beers. We're not doing spontaneous, so I would never even begin to uh, call it uh, Lambic, but um, it's in the, it's, it's, those are some of my favorite beers to drink. And so um, something that I did back when I worked at Coors was uh, um, basically think, what if you pitched the cultures that you that you are have available to you um into a work um a, like a lambic style work what would happen um so we tried that it worked out pretty well we cut we called that colorambic at the time um and that's the actual beer that um finally or really gave me the itch to start my own brewery before that i thought i'd just be working at millicours for my whole life and uh and that didn't work out but here we are so we took um, like a Lambic style wort, so 60, 65% pale malt, 35% raw wheat, um, a, a bunch of aged hops, um, tr- go through the traditional brewing process, um, cool it down, uh, add the wort to oak barrels. So we've got both punchins and uh, like Bordeaux barrels, so 228 liters, 500 liter barrels. Um, and then we add all the cultures that we think that I thought and I had available to me that might be in Lambeck. Um, and so back when I was working at Coors, those were, those were, uh, we had some pretty good results. And so I've taken it a little bit further, um, on this project. Uh, so those are about four to six months old right now, uh, in my cellar, not quite there yet. I was hoping they would be, but, uh, they're obviously can't rush a good sour beer. Um, so we're just going to sit on those. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll probably t- taste some of those barrels here in a couple weeks, um, but I'm in, I'm in no hurry really for those. Uh, and so that's really the other half of what we're trying to do at Casey Brewing and Blending is make something that uh, is reminiscent of what probably all of our favorite beers are. Scott, we have a caller on the line. Yeah. Hey, Alex. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, good. You in uh, Ontario, California or Ontario, Canada? Canada. Oh, nice. Kitchener, Kitchener Ontario. A long way away up in Canada. What's up? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm a brewer up here at a little 10-barrel uh, brewery. Um, and we're starting to do some sour stuff now. So I just had a couple questions about some of the processes that we're looking at doing. For sure. So right now we have about 14 barrels uh, filled with non-sour beers. Um, but then as they're getting empty, we're wanting to fill them with uh, sour beers. So they're kind of emptying one or two at a time, not enough to brew a full 10-barrel batch into. So one thing that we've been talking about doing was brewing like a small batch of a wort that would finish out at a high gravity and then blending that in with like our standard Saison, which is a beer that we have all the time, um, into a barrel to have some more like a higher finishing gravity uh, to give the bacteria and yeast more to, to like to eat, I guess. I don't know if that is something that you would recommend. I don't know what kind of, um, when you guys go into barrels, how high of gravity do you generally go in with, I guess, is one of my questions. All right. Well, yeah. Start just starting there. Um, so uh, let me ask one clarifying question first before we dive yeah. in. So you're talking about brewing uh, a high gravity wort and then blending it with the saison. So is that blending a wort with a finished beer and then going into barrel? Sorry. Yeah. So that wasn't very clear. I, I was talking about brewing like a, a wort that would finish fermentation higher. Oh, okay. So mashing higher and maybe a lot of oats or wheat or something like that uh, because we don't have much of that in our in our saison, like our regular saison recipe, mm-hmm. and then blending that with our saison in the barrels. Well, one suggestion that I would give right off the bat, Alex, is that uh, yep. you know it seems like you're 
you've kind of got these just couple barrels uh, open at a time. So, you yeah. know, maybe you're trying to hold off from brewing a full batch. Um, what I would do is maybe you say you have the Saison, run off uh, a little bit of it as you're going to the fermenter, and then just do 100% yeah. barrel fermentation with, you know, a little bit of your Saison batch. You know, you'll be short on that for one batch, but then you're right. filling those two barrels at a time. And so... You'd be going in at whatever your Saison's original gravity is, and you'd be doing a primary sour beer fermentation. It's something that Troy's doing all the time. It's something that I'm doing all the time. You can definitely have really good success with that. Um, But, you know, you could also do the classic way of fermenting it out and then putting in the barrels afterwards. Right. In that case, I would suggest that you really grow up your sour culture nice and strong beforehand because everyone who tries that kind of classic method, they often have problems producing a lot of good high quality lactic acid over time yeah. if they leave and then what they do is they leave it in the barrel until it sours and what they're doing is they're introducing oxygen and acetic acid is being produced and then ethyl acetate in an extreme example yeah. so um what i would do is just make sure you have a very strong culture to, because it's going to be going up against alcohol in that secondary right. fermentation but uh chris what do you think yeah yeah well i mean there's something else that I would suggest if you're if you're interested in sort of using these barrels for now and then using them again later to actually use bacteria. Something that I've had a lot yeah. of success with is taking uh, a saison that I on purpose will ferment a little bit lower to create a lot of phenolic characters. You can put it in the barrel and you can pitch either several strains or one specific strain. Make sure it's a good culture of Britannomyces. So what you can do is you can make a really good Brett barrel aged beer uh, saison. I would I would suggest making a quite highly phenolic sort of saison character your brett's going to be pretty active pretty quickly tearing down those phenolics and make some really cool brett characters and then by the time that's done you can essentially just let it sit in the barrel with brett uh, make sure it's topped off feel pretty comfortable that the brett's going to keep as much oxygen out as possible until you're open with a bunch of barrels then you take those off and then i would suggest making a sour brand of those barrels but that's obviously just a different uh, option that you'd have yeah yeah cool interesting um, troy anything to add to yeah, that yeah go ahead I agree uh, 100% with you, Jay. Um, the only thing I'm going to add is that uh, when you think about putting in a high, uh, a low attenuated beer into a barrel, I mean, it makes sense on paper, like you're giving the Brett and things like that something to work with. But yeah. it's never worked out for me. Um, I think you're going to end up with problems when you come when it comes time to bottle uh, the beer because if you're going to be bottle conditioning or even if you force carbonate, you're going to probably have more attenuation occurring um, later on in the mm. process. And so for me, I would say just just do something standard. Use a yeast strain um, that you're comfortable with, that you know where it's going to attenuate to, um, and so that you're comfortable with it and it's not going to like turn into a grenade um, when it comes time for packaging, which is my biggest thing when people start talking about bottle conditioning. Uh, this is kind of off the subject a little bit, but I want to say it is that you always use a strain that the work has already seen, that the beer has already seen. So like anytime I bottle condition, I use a, a, a the Dre Brett and uh, the, the work, the beer has already seen that. So I know that when I add sugar and that Brett kicks off, it's not going to go any further than I think. I hear a lot of brewers talk about using like a champagne yeast or something and I mean, God, you don't have enough control over these beers to begin with. And then you're going to go use a yeast that you've never maybe used a couple times in your life. It's going to make some uh, – it's going to go a little bit further. You don't know what you're doing when you do that. And so that's kind of my uh, my suggestion. Interesting, yeah. And so how, when you do that, how far down does your saison get then when you when you bottle it? Like uh, ours generally goes down to 
one five, like at what point would you say it's safe to bottle before you don't have to worry about the Brett kicking up and, and causing bottle bombs? So for me, the, uh, we we do probably like around a nine plate of beer. It uh, it leaves the primary fermenters at, at around uh, one five to one eight, um, and then we bottle around. It's around one two or one three. That's always batch dependent, and so that's why I use the same Brett strain that was in there during primary because I'm comfortable that it's not going to go further. I'm going to add enough sugar to get the carbonation level I want, but it's not going to go any further than that. Um, and so if you're doing a primary fermentation. Um, with only saison yeast, uh, if you're going to bottle condition it with Brett, it's going to be tough to do because you don't really know exactly where it's going to go. So you got to kind of do those experiments to see what's going on. The easiest suggestion, which is what I do, is to add the make it a mixed culture to begin with, and then I know over six weeks it's where where that where that finishes, that's where it is, and it's easy to bottle after that because I'm, I'm not worried about going any further. But it's a sour beer, it's a wild beer. Um, you've got to uh, give it the time it needs to do its thing, and you've got to know what your yeast strains are using and, and know your yeast. That's a big thing. Thanks for the call, Alex. Good luck up there. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, excellent advice, Troy. Um, so, Troy, I know we're running a little long. You know, we we call it the sour hour. In here we call it the sour hour and a half because we're always running long. <laughs> but uh, thanks for being so generous with your time. I want to get you out on this question. Um and I, I love asking this one, uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. What do you think the biggest mistake in sour beer making is? So uh, I'm a big fan of your show, and uh, I was kind of expecting that question. And then <laughs> when you guys started, uh, you kind of talked about it already. I think the biggest mistake uh, American brewers do is sour mash. Um, and I was really excited to hear, uh, is it Chris, right? Yep. Yeah, Chris, I was really excited to learn how you do yours because that sounds awesome. Um, and so for me, like nine times out of ten when I try a sour mash beer, it's it's just not good. Um, and uh, yours, your your method sounds awesome. And so I'm really excited that you got to share that with everybody today. But there's too many brewers that are doing that see that the the see dollar signs when it comes to comes to making um sour beers and so they figure out the fastest easiest way to do it and then just because it's sour they sell it it might have a lot of those flavors like you're talking about the eyes of valeric eyes of butyric um the, the poopy diaper oh they're those are just awful uh and so it really gives a bad rep for everybody um and so that's my that's my biggest uh biggest gripe is when you if you're going to do a sour mash beer um the, my, my favorite ones have been like where brewers We'll do a single batch, let it go for 24, 48 hours, hopefully in a similar method like you described, Chris. And then they'll, uh, they'll, they'll boil that, rack it up into the fermenter, but it's a double brew. And so the next one they do is clean. Um, and so that the acidity isn't the dominant character of the beer. It's just part of it, um, which, is, which is a great thing because it's easy to make sour beer. It's easy to make bitter beer. It's easy to make sweet beer. It's easy to make salty beer. But what, when it comes down to it is if, can you make those done well, um, which is where sour mashing has a, has a good uh, opportunity to it, um, but only if it's done well and if brewers uh, need to be willing to uh, dump the beer if it uh, turns out bad because otherwise it, it's just bad for all of us. But I, I think there's too many brewers that just see dollar signs and they and they go after it. Absolutely. And speaking of beers done well, Troy, these beers have been incredible tonight. Thank you so much for sending these out. And, you know, I know often on the show we're making people jealous of uh, the beers we're drinking. And I wanted to mention coming up on uh, December 6th, you got a pretty – 
humongous, awesome, you should book a plane ticket right now kind of <laughs> bought a release. Can you tell us about some of the beers you're going to be releasing then? So since we're only doing about 40 to 50% of our production right now as we wait for that, as we wait for that Lambic-style beer to uh, come of age, um, we're only open once a month. Uh, so we're open the first Saturday of every month in Glenwood Springs. Our website is caseybrewing.com. Um, every, uh, every month we're open that first Saturday. We've got something new uh, for release. We'll sell as much as we can, then we self-distribute the rest. So we sell as much, uh, whatever's left, we'll sell as much as we can here in our valley, which is from Glenwood Springs up to Aspen. Anything left over after that goes to uh, the front range between Fort Collins and Denver. Um, on December 6th, we're releasing five beers, three of them which are new. Um, so we took the same cultures that were in that Saison that you guys are trying, and we made a new beer called East Bank, which is a kind of a stronger uh, farmhouse sale. So it's a 12 Play-Doh beer. We think it gets around uh, 6.5% alcohol made with local, fresh Glenwood Springs honey. That honey created a lot of uh, flavors that I was not expecting at all. It's definitely different. Uh, we get some uh, some higher phenols, I think, because of the uh, simple sugars that were in that honey. Um, and there's definitely some like uh, comb type uh, notes to it. So I'm excited to see what people think about it. Um, we also have a new version of our fruit stand, which is made with fresh grapes. So we got Cabernet Sauvignon grapes from Palisade. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Got a color and flavor that we've never seen before. And then we also did a collaboration with a, a brewery that I'm very close close with here in the Valley, which is Roaring Fork Beer Company in Carbondale. Um, we did a collaboration. We're calling it Brett Loves Citra. So we did uh, about 100% Citra, 12 Play-Doh beer. Um, and then we both for uh, we split up the wort. Um, mine is uh, with some uh, house cultures of Brett uh, that I actually got from uh, Cantillon. Um, and uh, we get some lacto, some pedio in there as well. So it's a little bit tart. Um, some definitely some funky brat notes in there, but the, the hops are just unbelievable. I, I mean, I think we all know that brat does some crazy things with uh, with uh, uh, dry hop beers. This beer is not dry hopped, but it tastes like it is. And so um, in the future, we, we need to learn more about what, uh, what brat does with dry hopping because this beer is the um the thesis of that so yeah thanks for letting me plug that i'm so happy to be here today and uh this was fun talking with you guys i miss you out there in california i'd I'd kill for rain right now not snow (laughs) yeah it's 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 been blanking in the country but we'll we'll take any kind of uh water form we can get out here yeah no kidding (laughs) but but he's right though I, i i did not spend this morning chiseling rain off my windshield yeah, that's absolutely true. But I've seen just from the pictures on your Facebook page, uh, and you, you guys should all follow uh, Troy and Casey Brewing Blend on Facebook and Twitter, and look at the beautiful taste room. It's worth the trip out. Make sure you get out there December 6th. Troy, thanks so much for your knowledge, and most importantly, thanks for sending your beers. Yeah, you're the man, Troy. Thank These you. are awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, we'll talk again soon, Troy. Thanks so much. All right, wow, that was great. Troy, Troy is the man. He's like... One of the nicest guys I've ever met, and he gave – one thing I just want to mention, he gave an incredible talk. This is at a Craft Brewers Conference, and uh, I think it was Washington, D.C. He was up there with uh, Chad Jacobson of Crooked Stave, and just great knowledge. If you guys can snag that MP3 somehow off uh, off the interwebs, it, it, it's worth it. There there's some smart fellows over there in uh, Colorado. So, uh, you know what? I think we're going to take an unprecedented fourth – no, this, this is just the third. third uh, we're gonna do, we'll, we'll do an unprecedented fourth segment. Though. We're going to do an <laughs> unprecedented fourth segment, and I think we're going to hang out with uh, Chris a little bit more, maybe pop open some of his beers and yeah. talk them over, and then maybe we'll wrap up the rest of the questions, too. You're listening to the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Be right back. 
Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanisha, and I love a bold, hoppy beer, one that spits resin in your face and makes you cry, Uncle. There are a lot of great hoppy beers out there, but at Heretic, we want to make something as bold, dank, and resiny as possible. We use hops at every chance we get, including multiple dry hop additions. The result is Heretic Evil Cousin. This light golden, 8% Imperial IPA has an easy malt character that helps take the edge off the massive bittering, but it takes a back seat to the in-your-face hop character. We make sure this beer finishes dry so the hops can jump out and slam me in the taste buds. If you can't get enough hoppy goodness, Evil Cousin is your cup of tea. Cheers.
back. It's the Sour Hour on the Brewery Network. I'm Jay Goodwin. We're at the Hop Grenade in downtown Concord, where if you ride your bike here on a certain day of the week, you get 20% off your first pint. Is that true? That's right. Lazy Sunday. Lazy Sunday. Wow. Yeah. That's an incredible deal. Yeah, I ride my bike here every day. You know that? Wow. You must get a great discount. I do. I do. <laughs> Upwards of 20%. Five finger. <laughs> All right, we're running late here on the sour three hours and a half. Uh, what's the Brew Network's policy on overtime pay? Time, um, and, time and a half, no, double, du- time. double time. Yeah, oh, yeah. double time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, Bevo's happy about that. Double time on the OT? Yeah, yeah. although I, the thing is, I just never approve overtime for her. But oh. it, it is double time, but she just never gets to work it. Okay, all right. We got two beers in front of us. They're both from uh, Green Bench Brewery in St. Petersburg, Florida. We got Chris Johnson. Uh, what's your official title there, Chris? Um, I'm a co-owner and head brewer. That's a sexy title. <laughs> yeah, it's it, mostly when you look at me like like that. So, <laughs> well, thank God we're on. Uh, what's what's the uh, the live stream? Live stream. Yeah, uh, yeah. Slash... It's, it's a weird one. Brewingnetwork.com/slash/tv. There you go. Yeah. Brewingnetwork.com/slash/tv. You can see Chris's face, and he is the co-owner, head brewer. Green Bench Brewery. And uh, what are these beers that are in front of us? All right. So the first one we have is called Surrealist IPA. It's a sour IPA. So it's essentially that joining of two things that should never be together, hops and sour. So it's a kettle soured beer that post kettle sour we treat like an IPA. The concept is essentially grapefruit. I mean, I I know you guys have a lot of citrus here. Uh, We have a lot back home as well. If you're eating a grapefruit, a fresh one, we actually had a grapefruit tree in my backyard when I was growing up. Uh, And if you eat it without sugar, it's tart but it's also bitter and that's kind of the concept of this beer so uh it's seven percent abv again kettle soured huge malt bill though to kind of combat sort of the the acidity can you go in and i'm tasting some malt flavors in here that i was yeah. not expecting yeah it's uh it's got a caramel 
Carmel 40, uh, base of Turo. Um, it's got some Munich 20. It's got some Carapils, and it also has a little bit of C10. But for the most part, it's actually, but it's high amounts of Munich 20. Um, okay. That's probably the most. And then right under that is probably C40. I, I don't, I know the, the recipe off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's somewhere around like 8% Munich 20. Like it's a good amount of Munich 20. It's got a real malt richness to yeah. it. And I was almost like, this is like, it's not like overly sweet or anything, but it's almost got like this slight chocolate character to it yeah and and the you know you you call it a sour ipa and i'm not i'll try to describe you know the the taste of it for people who are just listening it's it's not sour it's it's bright right it's it's brightening the beer with a little acidity you know so it's it's really nice but continue with the the rest of your process uh it's only 3.6 3.7 ph usually um this is i think the third batch we've done since we opened um but yeah so basically it's the same process we we ladder to the kettle once we're there we do this you know kettle sour process like i mentioned once i get to the ph boil it i mean it's a ton of hops uh early on i think theoretical it's almost like 100 and 125 bus uh, when you're doing using hops and and a, and a lower pH than normal, I find that you almost have to overdo the bitterness unit in order to combat just to just for perception because you won't even taste the bitterness unit at 60 BUs if you do a 3.7 pH beer. So you have to almost like double it in order to get the same. Now, true, who knows? I haven't actually run it through any sort of systems to see if um, in, a, in a lab to see if it, what what the true BUs are. But in my theoretical, it's pretty high. Um, and then I dry hop it. Uh, the, the, the feature hop in this is actually Hopsteiner's 5256, which is uh, an experimental variety that has this awesome, awesome grapefruit character. And that's what it's only dry hopped with. And it's pretty heavy dry hop. It's uh, almost two pounds per. Actually, yeah, a little bit over two pounds per barrel. Nice. Dry hop. Yeah, that really comes out, too. It, really interesting beer. And, you know, I, I wouldn't, if you're at uh, the, the, the tap room, I wouldn't let the, the sour IPA put you off. It's definitely, you know. Very approachable beer. Meant um, to be balanced. Yeah. But I, I get, like, grapefruit rind a lot. Like, if you, you're eating oh, a grapefruit yeah. and you get sort of those pits a little bit, it's, like, has that cool flavor. Big oh, time. Man, I need to eat more grapefruit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we have any more questions from either the chat or the, the email or the phone, Scott? Yeah, we do. We got a bunch of, uh, of uh, email questions, but we do have another one from the chat. Let me just explain briefly the hierarchy. Uh, callers get precedent and then chatters and then emailers, and I Ooh. fully appreciate the fact that not everyone can listen live. And so forgive me, people that emailed, and, well, I would ask live if I I could, but I'm going to give a precedent to uh, Cedar Valley Brewing Company, who's in the chat. He said, if I'm culturing a beer in a plastic pail, would I want to add oak chips or ass oak chips, as Bevo typed it to me, uh, to try and uh, get to try and get a barrel aged characteristic? Uh, if so, light or dark toast, uh, and when to add them? So, should he add them first of all? Can, can you repeat? Kind of beer it? He's culturing a beer. Yeah, he said culturing a beer in a plastic pail. Would I want to add oak chips to try and get a barrel aged characteristic? Well. Let me just take a whole sidetrack there. I'm I'm a little bit against the plastic pail if he's talking about sour beer. It's it's allowing too much oxygen in there uh, unless he's going for a big introduction over a very short period of time, which is a different deal. I mean, you've got a lot of ingress of the oxygen through the plastic, but you've also got just the poor seal of most pale lids, which is actually usually the main culprit. Um so that's first, but if we're going to talk about oak, um, yeah, I mean, chips Chips are a great thing. Um, they even make, like, powders now. Uh, so it's like, basically, how chunky do you want your wood to be, basically? This is the question you have to ask yourself. And then, uh, yeah, they're all, they're all good options. Um, 
French is going to be a little bit softer. American's a little more aggressive. Hungarian is kind of somewhere in between. Um, you're not too worried about the uh, oxygen ingress characteristics of the different woods. But, you know, just to touch on that real quick, American's is tighter. It's going to let less oxygen in. French oak is a little bit looser. It's going to allow a little bit more oxygen in. Um, anything to add on that, Chris? I actually have more experience or rather better results from using spirals. Uh, I think you get a lot more surface area out of them. We use them all the time at our brewery and at Cigar City when I worked there. Um, like the humidor, the white oak, those are all like oak spirals we did in stainless. Um, and that, that's how we do, for example, our French oak good brune. We do it in stainless, and then after post-fermentation, we'll add spirals to it. Um, some of the, Sometimes, yeah, we'll, we'll go into actual barrels, uh, but if we're looking for, like, kind of quick uh, barrel age sort of characteristics, spirals is the way I would suggest doing it. I also would second kind of what you said, Jay. I would probably put that in a glass carboy if you're going to do it in a small batch. Let, let me ask this. Does it, um, does it truly mimic a barrel-aged characteristic? Like, in other words... When you taste a beer, can you tell the difference between, oh, they added oak chips and, oh, this was aged in an oak barrel? Depends how much you use for how long. I mean, we we age all of our beers in oak barrels, but uh, it's kind of funny. We, using, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but <laughs> we, we do a lot of beer aged in oak barrels with a 100% Britannomyces fermentation along with lactobacillus. Now, if if we didn't tell you that and you had one of our beers, you'd be like, there's no Brett in this, and it was not aged in an oak barrel. And it's because we're using both of those, you can call them ingredients, to have less flavor impact and let the secondary ingredients shine through. So we're using neutral oak barrels. So, you know, having a brewery that has all oak-aged beers, some of them you can't even tell. Um, it just depends on the status of the, the wood, um, how long the contact time is, all that. Can you mimic it? I'd say, yeah, hell yeah. I mean, that's why you're putting the oak in there, um, but you got to be careful. You know, I'd, I'd start really low. You can always add more oak, but you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> so what do you think about that, Chris? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it completely depends <laughs> on what you're trying to get. Bebo's saying, yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> You've tried. She's put she's toothpaste she's literally back in the tube. Squeezed too much onto her toothbrush and she's too cheap. To, you got to put it right back in there. Yeah. Oh, she has a whole. Wow, she does have a technique. I've done. This, oh, I've a... done the same thing, by the way. I've okay. actually I've pulled uh, toothpaste tubes out of the trash can that my girlfriend has thrown away like they're empty, and I go, and Oh no, they out. are not. Yeah. And I will cut it open with a pair of scissors and scoop the toothpaste out of it. That, that's because he doesn't approve. Overtime. Overtime, yeah. So I, I got to get rid of that expression now. I mean, you guys just killed that. Vivo opened her mouth to talk and then just shook her head and said, forget it. <laughs> Continue to eat the cheese. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah, it's fine. I, I think it depends on what kind of oak character you're getting and how long you use it. For example, French oak. Um, French oak is hard because if you if you pull it too soon, it's going to be harsh and full of tannin and, and difficult to honestly drink. And patent. it's not as palatable. If you give it enough time, you'll get that sort of vanillin um, rounded character that is phenomenal. White oak is cool because every white oak beer I've ever had, well, using spirals, that is, in my experience, turns out extremely tropical. White oak gives you this, in, like, coconut and pineapple and just this papaya, like, this really cool tropical flavor, and I think it's phenomenal when paired with hops. I think if you do a hoppy beer with white oak, like, that is one of the best. that We do a beer, Central Oak IPA, and it's our Green Bench IPA aged on American White Oak, and it has this awesome try. It just it enhances sort of the hop character. It's not, in my opinion, as nice if you add it to, like, let's say a darker beer. You sort of have combating flavors, um, and it's difficult to sort of find a balance. It's really cool. There's a lot of a lot of really cool things going on in the state of Florida with craft beer. I mean, you guys have your whole uh, 
what's the what's the Berliner Weiss that you got? Oh, the Florida Weiss. Florida Weiss. Yeah, and then Florida you got Weiss all beer. your all your uses of different types of wood and yeah. oak with different styles of beer. Really cool stuff. If, if you guys are down in Florida, you gotta you gotta check this scene out because it's growing real fast and there's some cool stuff going on. Um, we have another question. Yeah, we're we're running way over, so let's just do uh, one more, and then we'll save the rest for uh, future shows. Let's cool. do a, a hopefully a sort of simple one. This one is from Michael uh, Cafaro. Uh, he said, "What is the recommended way for a homebrewer to carbonate a sour beer once ready to bottle or keg, and uh, what considerations do we need to make regarding equipment for both bottle conditioning and force carving?" Simple but complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'd say. Do you know your homebrewer? Do what is going to cost you the least amount of money. Like if you want you and you're doing carbonating and kegs, and then you're bottling off your uh, Blickman beer gun or your more beer counter pressure filler. You know maybe it's time for an upgrade. You want another one of those? Buy another one, and now you have a sour bottler and then your regular beer bottler. Let's say you take your oldest uh, corny keg. That's going to be your sour beer corny keg. Um, I mean, it's really everything on down the line you have to consider. Um, but, you know, it, it's to each his own with uh, bottle conditioning versus uh, carving the beer and then bottling it. I, you know, to me as a home brewer, if you're, if you're looking for ease, I, I, the second I got corny kegs and a kegerator and I could just force carve beer, it was like the greatest day of all time. So, you know, I'd stick with that. And then down the line when you're trying to do more, do some bottle conditioning, or heck, do the do both at the same time. You know, um, I don't know how, how do you do your guy, your guys' beer, Chris? Um, well, the way that we do it, I mean, we we do a blend of sort of force carb and then Asian bottles, usually because we know that there's usually live yeast in most of our sour beers. Um, other than like, for example, the Surrealist, the Berliner, the French Oak Brun, those are uh, kettle soured and then just sacked. But anything we go in a barrel with, and then we're going to bottle later, we know there's live yeast in. Uh, if I was a when I was a homebrewer and I started doing sour beers. Um, it's really to your discretion at that point. It's like, what are you most comfortable with? Are you comfortable with running, you know, the bacteria and brat through lines? I really wasn't. So anything that had that happen, that immediately was a sour um, equipment. Uh, so you, you'd have to then spend money on more equipment. If you, I think that the cheapest way and the easiest way is to turn your bottling bucket into your sour bottling bucket. And now you run sour beers into it. And then that is your bottle condition. And now you're not really afraid of anything. Um, if you're using kegs, then you're talking about all your lines, all your disconnects, all that kind of stuff. You're probably going to be afraid of using that on your IPA, your payload that you're going to send to NHC or whatever competition you're going to send it to, and it turns into whatever. So I would say use your own, use your best discretion, but uh, know that whatever you use, you I, I would personally, as a home brewer, just go ahead and use that as sours from now on. For sure. And I, I think that's going to be good advice, especially with uh, bottle conditioning. You may be able to bypass using some of your other equipment, exactly. and especially some of that equipment can be a little pricey. Um, so I think right now we got another beer in front of us. Let's uh, hear a little bit about this, and then let's sign it off because we deserve to get drunk after <laughs> all this traffic and the two-hour sour hour. Damn right. You know, let's Although, the, you know, for the people that are uh, gang listening to this, as many people do with podcasts. Go, you know, they, excuse me, what? Uh, gang uh, listening? Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, I don't support that term. Yeah, I feel like I'm being taken advantage of. Yeah. Now, if you're gang listening right now, please stop, sir or miss. Uh, let's see. Uh, how about uh, they're listening to shows back to back to back? Better? Binge. 
Binging, uh, binge binging is a way better well, word. Well, but then that's the whole um, make yeah. Yeah. Doesn't gang make listening imply there's a group of delinquents listening. She did hop in right when you said that, didn't she? That's the oh, they're talking about gangs. <laughs> I'm done with my cheese. I'm gonna cut. I am done with my cheese. <laughs> <laughs> she stuffed all the toothpaste back in the tooth. <laughs> I think they call it they call it gang taping. You know, when you get uh, you you record like a bunch of shows back to back. So I just gang listening. Okay, okay. binge listening. It's good word. Jeez. Uh, anyway, they probably just heard us sign off the last show with uh, we got to get out there and watch the Giants game. Uh, we got no Giants well. game to go watch because uh, they won it all. Yeah, and not, it's all you know, over. it's I'm sorry for all the uh, Royals fans out there. Anyone associated with, you know, any other baseball team like oh, yeah. the Tampa Rays, you oh. know, maybe their bird is two blocks away from that <laughs> stadium, Tropicana Field. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't go there every Game, it's no big deal. <laughs> holding, look at look at what be the her uh, what is that Dodgers uh, credit card? Ouch! Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's invalid in this cut it up. in this state. Yeah, no, she she spends a lot on it and gets almost nothing for it. Oh, <laughs> terrific! All right. What's up with this last beer? Yeah, what's going on with yeah. this, Chris? All right, so this is uh, the first beer in our Web City Cellar series. So our cellar room that we climate control is for wine and spirit related sour beers. This beer was brewed in January. It is a rye sour brown, so heavy rye, uh, lots of chocolate flavors. The, the malt bill is fairly complex. Um, we kettle soured it to 3.1 pH, and post-heat exchange, I, I filled up Cabernet Sauvignon barrels from Sonoma County that I had shipped in and went into the cellar room and pitched Britannomyces clasinii. So they fermented 100% in the barrels, where they then aged in the cellar room for nine months. So the concept here was I didn't really want brett character i wanted so i, so I picked the, the the brett c as sort of this neutral brett that wasn't going to make a ton of sort of funky flavors and also 100 percent brett so it would make a lot of f- funky flavors but my concept was that i wanted it to be very dry so i wanted i wanted a britannomyces so i knew i would dry the beer out almost completely uh i would have uh, a good pellicle on the top so that as it sits in the barrel i could avoid things like acetic acid um and the, what I wanted is for this beer to be an American wild beer, American sour beer, really, not really wild beer, American sour beer. So I wanted I, – that's why I use Brett, and it, it, it's all about grain bill complexity, oak, and wine character. And that's what I wanted from this beer, and then tartness. So those were the, those were the elements that I wanted to showcase. That's why I used Brett C. And so, uh, yeah, it's the first – it's called For the Mad Ones. It's out now. We released it in October and the concept with the Web City Cellar Series that every four months we release a brand new spirit barrel aged or or wine barrel aged sour beer and or wild beer uh, from that cellar room. So this is our first one. It's an awesome beer. It, it's I, and I had it yesterday also, uh, but today it's giving me it's kicking off like this nice chocolate strawberry ice cream kind of thing. It's like <laughs> so smooth. And, and you know I say that, but I, I don't want it to translate as oh it's too sweet. It you you're. If you have reminiscence of sweet flavors, but it's it is dry, it is drinkable. The perception of sweetness more Absolutely. than actual sweetness. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good beer. I've it's never got, had anything like it. Yeah, it's unique. And this so all the souring, you know, it's coming pre like the end of your brew day, yep. basically. I mean, it's it takes several days, obviously, to do the kettle souring. Well, it's but, nice because I can come in on a Friday, I can mash in, move in my kettle, and I don't boil it till Monday. Mm-hmm. So it's a weekend thing. It's a half day. He's, yeah. He checks out early. It's literally half day. I'm like, oh, we don't have to worry too much. It's just a kettle side. Rays have a de- double header on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly. out of here. <laughs> Those are the kind of things you can do as the owner and master brewer. That's right. Awesome. Well, awesome beers, Chris. Uh, if you know anyone's out there traveling to St. Petersburg, you got to check this place out. Going to a Rays game and enjoying their, you know, first and second place finishes without any World Series titles. You well, got to check this out. Well, <laughs> glad I showed up. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, I think it's it's about that time we should probably be signing off. Uh, so thanks to Scott and Bevo, thanks to Chris from Green Bench, thanks to Troy from Casey Brewing and Blending for sharing all the beers. We'll see you guys in about a month on the next episode of the Sour Hour. Scott, yes, sir. you got anything left to say? Oh no, but I want you. I want to hear the uh, you know membership program and uh, rare barrel plugs. Um, whatever. The rarebarrel.com <laughs> is our website. Yeah, and if you ever see our beer, please buy it. <laughs> yeah, we're trying. We're trying to make more beer, oh, but uh, yeah. yeah, I don't have much. So uh, let's let's go get a pint. Hell yeah! Let's so do it. Uh, for all of us here at the Hop Grenade in downtown Concord, I am Jake Goodwin. This has been the Sour Hour signing off. Thanks, and see you guys next time.